Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for my, many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? This is the first four verses of Psalm 56, which along with Psalms 57 and 58 are the Psalms appointed for today, Monday, May the 16th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, we are in continuing our study in the Book of Wisdom, which I explained about a week ago, where that comes from. It is not in the Bible proper. It's in the Apocrypha, which is a set of books that were written in the, quote, inter- intertestamental period, which is the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so sometime between Malachi and Matthew. <laughs> so got a 400-year spread of time there, and, and these were written in that period, we believe, and this one particularly is ascribed to Solomon, and you're going to see very clearly why it would be ascribed to Solomon in the reading today. Uh, we're continuing in the book of uh, the Gospel, I'm sorry, of Luke, uh, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, and then in uh, Paul's letter to the Colossian church, chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 18. And you're going to see in this that, that this letter is a, quote, circular letter. In other words, it was meant to be read by multiple congregations. It wasn't addressed necessarily to one congregation. It was written to the people in the region. So uh, here we go with... Um, Wisdom literature. O God of my fathers and Lord of mercy, who has made all things by thy word. So this is this is a prayer addressed to God. And it ascribes the, the creation of all things to his word, which is exactly what you see in um, Genesis 1. And then you also see it again, it not as clearly to us as it is in, in Judaism, because they call it the ten words. So the Ten Words of God, the, the uh, Ten Commandments given at Sinai, constitute the, the uh, creation of the nation. Before that, they've just been a family. They've been God's chosen family, but they've just been a family. And so when he gives them the Ten Words at Sinai, they are now created and constituted as a nation. They, they've transcended um, their, their status as a family, and now they've become a nation. Before that, they were called Hebrews, right? That's mostly what they were called, and that means river crossers. They're the people who crossed rivers. They didn't have an identity of their own as a nation, only as a family. So, thou hast chosen me to be king of thy people and to be judge over your sons and daughters. You've given command to build a temple on your holy mountain and an altar in the city of your habitation a copy of the holy tent, which you prepared from the beginning. Now, I'm modernizing the language, and maybe I shouldn't. Um, The word thou, thee, thine, those are all language that's set apart for God. There was a guy in the church who used to use that language in his prayers all the time, and and I didn't really know at the beginning why he was doing it, and then I began to understand. He does this for a very specific reason. Um, he's acknowledging the difference between us and God by using that language. But I'm going to go ahead and keep on reading it the other way. <clears throat> With you is wisdom who knows your works. So wisdom, it, we, we kind of look at it as a personification of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament because there's, there's a separate entity at some level. With you is wisdom who knows your works and was present when you made the world. 
Now, that sounds also like John 1 language. And if we, since we believe in the Trinity, we, we can see that wisdom is the personification of the Word. And, and so then it becomes that wisdom is the understanding of the meaning of all things. Because that's what Solomon asked for was wisdom in judging God's people. And, and so it wasn't simply, let me have the knowledge and understanding to read the law. No, he understood that it was a complex thing, and it required something more than just understanding the law in order to apply the law. And that's why people ask Jesus things like, who's my neighbor? Because I have to love my neighbor. So that's exactly what's going on here. What wisdom is the, the deep understanding of the law in order to apply it in a particular situation. So wisdom knows your works and was present when you made the world and who understands what's pleasing in your sight and what's right according to your commandments. Send her forth from the holy heavens and from the throne of your glory. Send her that she may be with me and toil so that I may learn what is pleasing to thee. So he, he He's saying, I need a guide, and he's asking that God would give him the guide, and that would be the Holy Spirit. And Solomon had wisdom that surpassed everybody else in the entire world. And so people came to him, kings and queens came to him to see this man and this extraordinary wisdom that he possessed. Well, he knew right from the beginning that that came from God. He could read the law. They have to, in fact, kings had to make their own uh, script. They had to write their own Torah scroll <clears throat> to prove that that was the most important thing to them. That was a part of becoming king was you had to write your own Torah scroll. So here he's saying, this is what I need. I need it desperately. She knows and understands all things, and she will guide me wisely in my actions and guard me with her glory. Then my works will be acceptable. And I shall judge your people justly and be worthy of the throne of my father. For what man can learn the counsel of God or who can discern what the Lord wills? For the reasoning of mortals is worthless and our designs are likely to fail. For a perishable body weighs down the soul and this earthly tent burdens the thoughtful mind. We can hardly guess at what's on earth and what's at hand we find with labor. But who has traced out what is in the heavens? He says, look, you know, worldly wisdom doesn't get you very far, to be perfectly honest with you. You, you, you know, Machiavelli, okay, but that only gets you uh, power. What is the point of having that worldly wisdom? Is it to gain money, influence, power, friends, whatever it is? He says, none of that stuff's actually worth having, and, and it's not honest, because it has an ulterior motive. He said, what I need to judge your people justly is the wisdom that comes only from one source, and that is the one who is the author of the law. I need you to help me apply this, and I believe that you can give it to me. I believe that your wisdom is actually something that can be made available. And do we really take that very seriously, our own selves? You know, do we say, God can give me his wisdom? in all situations. doesn't mean that we will understand and make the, quote, right decision, because sometimes the outcome won't feel right. But it is. And that's the thing, is I need wisdom to interpret this, what I consider a bad outcome here. What do I do with this? Is it a bad thing, or are you doing something here that I don't yet understand? Show me what you're doing. <clears throat> 
who has learned your counsel unless you have given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from on high. And thus the paths of those on earth were set right, and men were taught what pleases you, and were saved by wisdom. So we're saved by what? Well, send your Holy Spirit from on high. We're saved by faith. We are saved by the wisdom to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the only Messiah. And so the wisdom that Christians possess is first the wisdom to see that Jesus is the salvation of all humankind, that the man dying on the cross is in fact God, making atonement for the sins of the whole world. And so when when we say we have wisdom, it begins right there, and that wisdom— to know that and believe that, it is the wisdom then unlocks the potential for other knowledge and wisdom that you can only get by making the first step the step of faith. And so uh, when we pray, we should pray as Solomon does. We should pray for wisdom because we know it was God's good pleasure to give it to him. And so how much more would it be his good pleasure to give it to us? In the gospel today, one of the Pharisees had asked, actually asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, we assume she's a prostitute, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. The way it worked, when you had an important personage there, you essentially opened the windows of your home so that these, these other people wouldn't be able to eat, but they'd be able to hear. And, and you would get some renown be, because of your wisdom in choosing this person to come and be with you. And so that's, that's why this woman comes and does what she does. She has the ability to do that because he's made it. He, the, the Pharisee, has made it possible for her to do that. So she stands behind him at his feet, weeping. He's seating, reclining at the table because that's how they ate. They didn't just sit straight up in chairs like we do. They, they ate like we see in um, the Last Supper. They're reclining at table. And so she's behind Jesus, and she is um, weeping, and she began to wet his feet and her tears with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This alabaster flask of ointment would have been a perfume, and that perfume would have been there— uh, in order to, to to give her an allure that she would otherwise not have had. There would be this aroma that would come. And so she pours this out on his feet. And this would be a very expensive, lavish sort of gift that she's giving him. This would have probably have been nard, which you can only get in the Himalayas. And so it has to be way up in the in the mountains, and then it has to be brought down. So it's a very expensive and precious thing, but it's also precious to her in a different way because it's the way that, that she can get her clientele. So she's essentially giving up her old life. When she does this. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, listen to this, he said to himself, so he didn't sit there and speak this out loud. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering his private internal question said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. So he's recognizing Jesus as a rabbi, but Jesus is now going to prove he knows exactly who this woman is. He said a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50, so 10 times. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Good job. And 
Then turning toward the woman, so he's looking at her now. He's turned around behind him. Do you see this woman? He said this to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. That is basic hospitality. And, and I'll remind you of something that I've said multiple times, which you may not have heard it, but which is that hospitality is sort of the cardinal virtue in Judaism. When you get to uh, Genesis 18, the way they read Genesis 18 is uh, this, this is when the, Moses greets the three visitors that we believe to be angels, the ones who go down to Sodom and um, destroy it ultimately but but he when he greets them the way they read that and it's the way they've always read it actually i mean at the time of jesus they read it this way was is that that moses that the lord had come to see moses this was right after his circumcision had come to see him and the way they read it then is to say hey how you doing but he but but then so he's there and then these three men come and we tend to conflate those two things in a way they do not and have not since the time of jesus at least because it's rabbinic Judaism teaching that gets us there. And rabbinic Judaism, that, the way we know what that is and was, is from the Talmud, which is the time around the time of Jesus. So we know that, that, hospita- that it was perfectly fine for um, Abraham to leave his audience with God and go attend to the needs of his people, the people who are visiting, and, and he's not rebuked by God in the least. And so hospitality... It is a huge, huge virtue. You could even walk away from an audience with God to do it, and it'd be the right decision. So when this guy doesn't provide Jesus basic hospitality, water to wash his feet, he has he he really sinned against Jesus. <clears throat> he says, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And so what he's saying is, is that you're a great sinner. You have sinned against me personally in, in horrible ways. You treated me with no respect at all. You call me teacher, but you don't respect me as a teacher. You don't even respect me as another human being you invited into your house. I, I'm a guest, but, but I see through the veil of what you've done. And so he has really laid it on Simon, this... Um, Pharisee, and told him exactly what kind of man you are. He's exposed something about him. He says, you don't think I know who she is? I know everything about her, but I'm also telling you that you're overlooking all the sin in your own life. He said, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. You know what he didn't say, right? That your sins are forgiven. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? One of the disciples have seen him do that. They saw him do that with the man that the friends brought and laid before Jesus on the, on the mat, and he, he forgave his sins, and then he healed him. So they've seen this, but, but this is so offensive to Pharisees. God alone can forgive sins. So when Jesus does this, when he says these words, There's only two ways you can take it, and that is one is that he's God, and the other is that he is a horrible blasphemer to presume such a thing. Because sins, the only way to forgive sins was through sacrifice. So you you had to go to the priest, but the priest wasn't the one who forgave you. The the, the sacrifice affected the forgiveness. The priest's role was to make sure that your sacrifice was a sacrifice that was acceptable for the sins that you were confessing. 
And so he, he would say these are acceptable to God. And so in that capacity, he worked for God, but it was never him who gave forgiveness. It was God who gave forgiveness by the acceptance of your offering. In the epistle lesson, it's a long one, so we're gonna, I'm going to have to kind of hustle here. <laughs> he, Paul's going to give instructions to people in all uh, stations of life in all situations of life as well. So he's going to begin with wives. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So he modifies submit to by using as is fitting to the Lord. But then immediately, husbands love your wives and don't be harsh with them. And so submitting would be, in other places, he will say respect. So this submission is a submission of respect as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. And if you do that, I mean, those two things are are tied together with one another. Love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We've forgotten that. We've absolutely forgotten that. We've we've turned things upside down and and made it the other way around. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And you can see that. I know the effect that I've had on my children at different times in my life when I've expressed my displeasure with them or whatever. I've, you can discourage your children as a parent far more than an outsider can discourage your children. And, and, but you notice he only speaks to the fathers here. There's no mother thing in this. It tends to be the father who does that. And, and we need fathers who are like their father in heaven. Bondservants, obey. In, these are the people who have sold themselves into slavery because they, they had debts. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Not fearing them, but fearing the Lord. You know, you're in this situation, and, and what, what you need to do is, is show what it means to truly be a bondservant of the Lord, recognizing that he gave you that opportunity to get out of debt. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. So continue to keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on him. Your reward will come from him. And so work for him and not for men. It's the acknowledgement that, that your master might not be a good man. So don't obey them as to them. Don't do it in some obsequious way. No, he's saying, no, obey as though the Lord were your master, because he is. And ultimately, your reward will come from him. Your inheritance will come from him. Your inheritance is what? It's literally in the land what your family has possessed down the generations. So your inheritance... In, in, a, in a temporal sense, is you'll get back what you mortgaged. And God, but you're going to get it back as your reward for obeying your master as though you were obeying the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he does, and there's no partiality. He's referring back again there to the masters, the earthly masters of the bondservants. He, he don't worry about vengeance and recompense. Don't worry about it at all. God's got that taken care of, he says. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. 
that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison. So this is one of Paul's prison's epistles. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul says, even though I'm in prison, I pray that you give me that, that you would ask God to give me opportunities to preach the gospel, and then pray that I'd be able to make it clear, which is exactly how I ought to speak. It's a, a powerful thing to say, pray for me in prison that I would have an opportunity to witness to Jesus Christ. The, the implication would also then be, you're not in prison. What's keeping you from sharing him? He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. So, so he presupposes this uh, adversarial relationship with the world at some level. But, he, but what he's saying is, is, don't walk as their adversary. Let them consider themselves your adversary, but don't you do that. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, those not in the church. And then let your speech be gracious. Right, So that you don't speak graciously to an adversary. Seasons with salt, which would be truth, so that you may know how to answer each person. Because they're going to bring objections to you and just pray that you'd be able to respond with grace to those objections and truth. <clears throat> Tychicus will tell, us all about my act, uh, tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. So he's, he's affirming him as he sent him there. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. So who is Onesimus, right? I mean, so that goes back to the letter that Paul writes to Philemon. Onesimus was the escaped slave that he was returning to him. They will tell you of everything that's taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, this is John Mark, with whom Paul had a little upset, let's say. <laughs> concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. So Paul says, even though I had some upset with John Mark, and that was the, 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 the cause of the split in, in places they were going between Paul and Barnabas, because Barnabas wanted to restore John Mark, and who he said had abandoned, Paul said had abandoned him. And, and now here he, he's saying, I'm, I'm not holding this against him. Even though you've heard from me about him and you may understand some things, no, receive him, welcome him. And, and we need to understand how to deal wisely with the world. We have the same wisdom available to us that was in Jesus Christ. And so we have that available to us, the same wisdom that was given to Solomon. Let's seek after that wisdom.